Hello, friends, and thank you for joining Christ Church Online. The Lenten season has officially begun, and with it, our Wednesday evening Lenten teaching series. This year, we'll be making our way through the first part of the Sermon on the Mount, which is known as the Beatitudes. Kicking us off as our senior pastor, the Reverend Dr. Jared Ott, and just a quick reminder that we also have a daily devotional available on the Christ Church app, which is available on iOS and Android phones. Now, here is Pastor Jared to kick off our series with an Ash Wednesday sermon entitled, Blessed are the Poor in Spirit. Thank you for listening. Well, Lord Jesus, that is our prayer here this evening, that we surrender all to you. Everything that we have, everything that we are, everything that you've given us, we surrender to you. Lord, as we come to your word now, Lord, we surrender any attitudes that we may have contrary to your word. Lord, I pray that you prepare our hearts and minds as we enter into a season of Lent, as we prepare for the Easter celebration. How you died for us, not only dying for our sins, but rising again three days later. Lord, we are so grateful. And for that, we surrender all as you died for us. Thank you, Lord. Thank you for speaking to us in your word. Thank you for teaching us how to go through this life as difficult as This passage may be, Lord, we know that you're with us every step of the way, and you give us the right minds and attitudes to be able to live out your word. So I pray that you speak to us now. Speak to me now. I pray that my lips are your heart. My lips are your lips, and my heart is your heart. That you press upon us this message you want us to hear. And I ask all this in your precious name. Amen. Well, good evening, and happy Valentine's Day as well as... Ash Wednesday. You know, it's interesting. I did some research, and the last time that Ash Wednesday and Valentine's Day fell on the same day was 73 years ago. It's interesting to come together today and think about the love that Christ showed us going to the cross, isn't it? As we think about the love that we show others. You know, Ash Wednesday is a service that goes back hundreds and hundreds and hundreds, hundreds of years. In fact, Irenaeus of Lyons in 130 was the first person to talk about observing, observing this time of examination and penitence and demonstrating self-denial in preparation for Easter. And when he talked about it back then in 130, it was only three or four days. It wasn't until the Council of Nicaea in 325, 325 that they, that they had a, a season of fasting. And then it was Gregory the Great in 540 who, who said, let's have Ash Wednesday and named Ash Wednesday on this Wednesday, 40 days ahead of Easter. We get to 40 days because we count the days leading up to Easter. We don't count Sundays because Easter, or those Sundays are non-fasting days. Those are celebration days. And so as we go through the 40 days throughout the history of the church, People would fast. People would give up various things. Some of you are fasting right now or giving up various things for Lent, and that's how we arrive at today, Ash Wednesday. Oftentimes, things were given up like sugars or sweets or full meals. What you would traditionally do with Gregory the Great in 540 talked about ashes, and they would put ashes on their forehead. The ashes were the burnt uh, palm leaves of last year's Palm Sunday. 
they would burn those ashes and put them on their, on their foreheads as a biblical reminder, a symbol of repentance, sackcloth and ashes, and a reminder of the verse from Genesis 3.19, you are dust and to dust you will return. And so we come here today on this Ash Wednesday as we have a look in time of our own lives, our reflection of our own lives as we prepare for Easter, as we give up various food and attitudes, actions, behaviors, and we repent those things to Christ. And we remember what happened in the wilderness for 40 days. That's why we read Matthew chapter 4, Christ being led and being tempted for 40 days. And it's a great reminder from Hebrews 4.15 that, For we do not have a high priest who is unable to emphasize with our weakness, but we have one who has been tempted in every way, just as we are, yet he did not sin. So we're reminded as we go through this series of Lent for 40 days that Jesus was being tempted. Jesus was being tempted in various ways. And I always looked at that verse and wondered, you know, how could he be tempted in every way that I am? Jesus was not tempted with, with, with lust or drugs or, or alcohol or covetousness or various attitudes that we have. I always wondered, how could Christ be tempted in every way and emphasize with us through our temptation? And then I realized that Christ was being tempted in categories. Christ is being tempted in categories. The lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life. He was tempted with the bread for his hunger. He was tempted with the lust of the flesh. And Satan said to bow down to him. That was the lust of the eyes, looking out all over everything he could have and attain. Lust of the eyes. And the pride of life. Satan says, cast yourself down. You'll be able to take care of your own self. Those are the ways that Satan attacks us, doesn't he? First of all, by distrusting the provincial care of God. Then assuming God on God by appealing to his existent grace. And thirdly, tempting with our own ambitions to fulfill the goals that he has already promised. Those are the temptations Christ faced, and those are the temptations we face. No matter what stage or age you're at in life, Christ can emphasize with the temptations that we face. And so we remember this Ash Wednesday. That's why we come here together today. And we come and we remember and we reflect a tradition that dates back hundreds and hundreds of years. But it's not just a tradition. It's really a time of reflection. You know, it's interesting. I grew up in a church, uh, many of you grew up in a church that always had Ash Wednesday. I grew up in a church that never had Ash Wednesday. In fact, I had never even heard of Ash Wednesday until I came to Christ Church 20-some years ago. And I had to ask Deb, my wife, I said, Deb, I don't, I, I'm, not, I'm not sure what's happening here. And so don't take it for granted that you've been part of this because one of the things I've come to love and appreciate is the fact that it really is a preparation for us as we approach Lent. And many of us give up certain things for Lent. My hope and desire and prayer is that as we look at the Sermon on the Mount that we give up certain attitudes certain attitudes. You see, when we do self-examination, it's not just about giving up various things in life, physical things, but there are certain attitudes that we have that we carry that we also need to present before the Lord, ask for forgiveness of those, repent of those uh, attitudes that we have that are contrary to God's word, and ask him to put in us the right attitude. That's why David said in Psalm 51, created me a, a clean heart, O God. Create in me a clean heart, O God. 
Do not cast me from your presence or take your Holy Spirit from me. Restore unto me the joy of your salvation and grant me a willing spirit to sustain me. Psalm 51, a powerful prayer that we read for Ash Wednesday as we reflect on those attitudes and actions that we have as we approach Lent. And so this year, as we come to the next number of weeks, I decided to look at beautiful attitudes, the Sermon on the Mount, one of the most challenging passages of Scripture that you're going to come through. And I thought, you know, it's wonderful for us as a church to be able to look at these in depth by various speakers and preachers who are going to dive into this over the next few weeks. One of the most difficult passages of Scripture, because they often seem contrary Contrary attitudes that we would be uh, blessed if we're mourning, or blessed if we're poor in spirit, or blessed if we're persecuted. But those are the right attitudes we are to have. And that's what we're going to look at over the next few weeks. As Jamie already talked about, Jason Burt and uh, Dr. John Guest will be here with us, and Matthew Rivers, and Dr. Lori Thompson from Trinity Seminary, and Tom Lemon from Word FM. Men who I know and trust that can take this, these passages and unpack them and dive into them. This will not be an easy uh, sermon series that we approach. But I know it'll be powerful because these are, these are words that God's given us, attitudes that we need to have. And so my hope and prayer is that we go through these over the next few weeks, that we examine our own lives and those certain attitudes that we have. And that's where we come to Matthew 5. You know, it is interesting that Jesus in Matthew, in Matthew 4, Jesus goes to the wilderness and we reflect on those 40 days. And then he goes on in Matthew 4 and picks the disciples, starts preaching, and then as the crowds gather, then Jesus gives us the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew 5. It's a great tie-in to what happened in, in the desert, in the wilderness when he's being tempted. And now he says, hey, here's the attitudes that you need to have. Well, what's wonderful, again, is that as these attitudes are, are difficult, are challenging, Christ can emphasize with us why. Because he's been tempted in every way. And that's where we come to Matthew chapter 5. The Sermon on the Mount. Beautiful attitudes. The Beatitudes. There's eight of them. We've condensed and combined a few over the next few weeks because some of them we can put together. But we're going to unpack these in detail. Matthew 5 chapter 1 says this. Now when Jesus saw the crowds, he went up to the mountainside and sat down. And his disciples came to him and he began to teach them. He said, blessed are the poor in spirit for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. As mentioned, there are eight. Eight beatitudes. The poor in spirit. Blessed are those who mourn. Blessed are the meek or merciful. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. Blessed are the merciful. Blessed are the pure in heart. Blessed are the peacemakers. And blessed are those who are persecuted for the sake of righteousness. Now as we look at uh, these, these attitudes over the next few weeks, we often wonder how could it be a blessing to go through those things? That's often why many pastors or churches would maybe not want to touch on these subjects because they are deep subjects. But I know the folks at Christ Church want to go deep. They want to unpack these and understand how could we have be blessed? And blessed is the word for the state of happiness or bliss. How could we have those things? How could we, have, how could we be happy by having those certain attitudes? You have to understand blessedness is the characteristic of, of God. And it can be a characteristic of men only as they share in the nature of God. 
Jesus is really speaking about a reality for for believers. This isn't a a superficial feeling that we're going to have, a a feeling of uh, based on circumstances, but a deep supernatural experience of contentedness based on our lives that's right with God. That's the idea here. It's not that we're going to walk through life with this smaller face joyful because we are mourning. We have a sense of blessedness, a sense of peace, a sense of happiness because our lives are right with what God is commanding us. But the Beatitudes do seem paradoxical, paradoxical, don't they? You think, how could you be mournful and be happy? How could you be persecuted? How could you be uh, a peacemaker? How could you be meek and still be happy? To the natural person, to those of us that don't know and love Christ, it would seem like these things would cause misery. And they're often confused. In fact, this one for today, poor in spirit, many people would attribute to that as a confusing thing. They would think, if I, as long as I'm poor, then I'll be happy. And that's not what Christ is saying. In fact, when we have these certain attitudes, we understand that we're right with God. And what you could do is you could actually reverse them. And when you reverse them, it often makes sense as well. In fact, I received an article, and I have to thank uh, Ed Shuley, our technical director, who, who sent me this some time ago. It was called The Ingratitude of the Fake Beatitudes. The Ingratitude of the Fake Beatitudes, a contemporary version. It says, blessed are those who are poor for absolutely nothing. For theirs is the kingdom of Amazon and the domain of the next day delivery. Blessed are those who mourn for more, for they shall be comforted with a comfortable life that calmly and consistently boils their soul right dry. Blessed are those who put themselves first, striving to be great instead of, instead of ever being second to anyone, because what really matters is to be great for this vaporous nanosecond, even if that means being dead last for all eternity. Blessed are those who keep up with the Joneses, Instead of keeping company for Jesus. For theirs is a life of climbing ladders instead of going lower. To the least and lonely of the lost. Blessed are those who focus on upward mobility. For theirs is an eternity of futility. Blessed are those who are meek only at being meek. For it is the powerful who punch back, the offended who attack, and all who hate to lack anything digital who will inherit the soul-wounding ways of this dog-eat-dog world. I love this one. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for more gourmet coffee and hunger for great accolades, audiences, applauses, great garages, closets, and wallets, for they shall be filled with a toxic discontent. Blessed are those who live with a pure but subtle greed, for they shall see their God in things and not in faces of those who need who God made. And finally, blessed are those who are never persecuted for being countercultural, who never give up until it's a sacrifice, who never risk for the sake of gospel, for theirs is a message of fake good news and the relief of no suffering lives. That's the ingratitude of the fake beatitudes. You can see what would happen if you invert those attitudes. The things that lead to those things, the results of those things. And you have to understand, too, as we go through the Beatitudes, they're also progressive. It's not haphazard. 
You look at that list and you think it's just a random list that Christ is kind of talking about. How could we have these attitudes if there's if there's no if it's not random, if there's no order, and there definitely is an order. The first step is entering into the kingdom. The first step is happiness in being poor in spirit, spirit realizing our, our spiritual poverty. The second one is now we mourn over it. The third one is humbly falling before the glory before the glory of the Lord in our condition. The fourth one then is pleading for righteousness which you don't have to hunger for. Then it begins to man itself in an attitude of mercy towards others, a pursuit of purity and peacemaking in your own life, which creates hostility in the world. That's the flow, the Beatitudes. So it's a progression. We start with one, and we go, and we move to the next. But you've got to work through the first one before you can get to the second one. So the Beatitudes. As we look at them over the next few weeks, my hope and prayer is, again, is that we examine our own lives. Over the next number of weeks, as we lead up to, to Easter, this great and powerful message that Christ has given us. You know, I remember being in Israel, and there's a, there's a great garden of the Beatitudes. And you walk through this beautiful garden, and they have rocks, and on these rocks is listed each one of the Beatitudes, and it's a beautiful, quiet place. I remember it being one of the most joyous places that we can be at. And I thought about this when I reflected on this, on this passage, that a place was a happy place. This garden up on top of a mountain where Jesus gave this sermon. It's so peaceful. And I thought, if we can only ascribe to those attitudes, if we only could have those behaviors, we would have that blessedness, wouldn't we? But we have to understand it first. And that's where we come to the first one. The poor in spirit. What is the meaning of poor in spirit? Well, we look at the Greek word first. The Greek word for poor there is tuhas, which means to shrink or cower or cringe. Now, you have to understand there's another word for poor, which is ben arak aros, which is an ordinary poor. What's the difference? Well, the first one that is listed here, blessed are the poor in spirit, that's to shrink and cower and cringe. Those are the, those are the poor that are so desperately poor that they're crouching in a corner begging for stuff. They're crouching, shrinking down. It was used in Luke 16.20, talking about the beggar Lazarus. He was crouching, begging for things. The other one is an ordinary poor. The ordinary poor was the woman who gave two coins in Luke 21. She was the ordinary poor. She was poor, but she wasn't begging. This one is the more powerful one, where it's talking about begging, completely dependent on other people. Jesus is now speaking then of a spiritual poverty. He is not talking about materialistic poverty. This is where a lot of people get confused. People would say, listen, wealth is, wealth is going to lead to all kinds of issues in life and all kinds of sadness because we have to be poor in spirit. Listen, wealth does lead to some other problems, but Jesus is not saying that we cannot be wealthy. Jesus is not condemning poverty. In fact, if he was condemning poverty, he would be contradicting himself in many other parts of Scripture right here also in the Sermon on the Mount. Jesus did not talk about, uh, uh, about material poverty. He's talking about spiritual poverty. In fact, when you look at the New Testament, Paul, who was shipwrecked and stoned, never had to beg for bread. He never had to tohas, to shrink or to cower. In fact, there's many people in the New Testament who are known to be fairly wealthy. Nicodemus, Joseph of Arimathea, Philemon, all were very wealthy people. In fact, Jesus, people would say that Jesus was poor in spirit. He was the real deep poor begging. Jesus, and nowhere in Scripture is Jesus begging for things. He's never begging for food. He's never begging for bread. In fact, Jesus lived a life. His dad owned a, uh, he was a carpenter. Dad owned his own business. They went through life 
I'm sure they had money. In fact, we know that, that uh, Judas had the bag of coins for the disciples to meet every kind of need. So Jesus is not talking about being physically poor. He's talking about a spiritual poverty. To be poor in spirit, to recognize one's spiritual poverty apart from God, to see oneself as lost, helpless, and hopeless. Apart from Christ, everybody is spiritually lost, no matter what education, social class, or religious knowledge you are. Those that are poor in spirit recognize that they are totally spiritually destitute, and they need to rely complete dependence on God. That's what we're talking about. We're not talking about material being poor. We're also not talking about an outwardly uh, outwardly sign of acting like we're poor. If you remember in Luke 18, I'm not going to read the whole passage, but there was a a great, great um, uh, parable that Jesus told about two men in the temple. One was a Pharisee. One was a tax collector, and the Pharisee was yelling really loud, God, I'm a, I'm a, I'm a, I thank you that I'm not like these other people, it says in Luke 18, robbers and evildoers and adulterers, or even like this tax collector, I fast twice a week, and I give a tenth of all I got, but the tax collector, he stood at a distance and was beating his chest. He looked up to heaven, beat his chest, and said, God, have mercy on me. And that's where we get Luke eighteen fourteen. Jesus says, I tell you that this man, rather than the other, went home justified before God. For all who exalt themselves will be humbled, and all those who humble themselves will be exalted. It's a spiritual poverty. It's not about showing how much we are in poverty. It's about you and God and your total dependence on him. That's what we reflect here today. That's the meaning of poor in spirit. So why is, why is this one first? Why is this humility first? It has to be first because it is, it's the foundation of all the other graces. You can't go through the other attitudes if you first aren't humble enough to say, hey, listen, Lord, I'm totally, utterly lost, and I need your help with this. We can't surrender that if we're full of pride. If we're holding on to things in life, then we can't accept anything else from the Lord. And you have to understand, when Jesus was talking to this, there was very many Jewish people around who were very proud of their accomplishments, whether it was in their, their sacrifices or their zeal for the law or, their, or their, their thoughts about circumcision or their covenant being the covenant people. They were very proud. The Pharisees were very proud. And that's where it all begins. Poverty of spirit is in the foundation of other graces. That's where it has to, be, that's where it has to start. That's why Proverbs 16.5 says, The Lord detests all the proud of heart. All the proud of heart. So as we go through this Lenten series, as we go through today, my question for you is, do you have that sense of saying, okay, God, everything I have is yours. I need to surrender it all to you. I'm full of pride in life. I can't do this on my own. I need your help. That's why humility comes first, because then we can have the other attitudes. So how do we achieve it? First, we achieve it by not under our own power. And it doesn't involve putting us down either. You know, you often see, uh, you'll see in monasticism or, or anesthetism or physical denial or mutilation, you'll often see people, the old monks would beat themselves or they would try to, try to stay up and not sleep or not eat or not talk. And what they were doing was they were trying to be poor in spirit. The problem was is that they fed their pride rather than subdued it. 
They were trying to show themselves that they were being uh, poor in spirit. And they were self-imposed efforts are enemies of humility. So when you're beating yourself and trying to show people that you're poor in spirit, you're actually showing that you're, 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 you're being more prideful. And so it's contrary to humility. So it starts with saying, hey, it's not about putting ourselves more down. It's simply saying, Lord God, I need everything that you can offer me so I can have these right attitudes. The second thing is removing everything that feeds it. Many of us look for praise and compliments to feel fulfilled. The evil is not getting the praise. The evil is glorifying the praise. Again, that's why David says, Create in me a pure heart, O God, a renewed steadfast spirit within me. That's achieving humility. So how do we know when we're humble? How do we know when we're humble? Well, Thomas Watson gives us seven principles to know when we're humble. How do we know when we've achieved humbleness in our life? How do we know when we've gotten rid of pride? When we take um, over the next week and we examine our own selves and our own pride, how do we know when we've achieved it? Here are seven things. First off, we are humble if we have weaned from ourselves. If we stop looking at ourselves as achieving what we've achieved or having what we have, if we have weaned from ourselves... That's why Paul says, I've been crucified with Christ. It's no longer in me who lives, but Christ who lives within me. Secondly, humility will lead us to be lost in the wonder of Christ. That's what's wonderful. Our, our satisfaction won't be in the prospects of, of, of one day being, being fully in the likeness of Christ, that we can strive to be like that. We're, we're lost in the wonder of Christ. We realize that we have sinned, that we have all come short of the glory of God. But the humility leads us to be lost in the wonder that one day we'll be perfect. Third, third, we'll know when we're humble when we will not complain about our situation, no matter how bad it may come. No matter how bad it may come. Many of us complain about where we are and things in life. Once we're humble, we realize God has us exactly where we need to be. He has us in the, in the point of life exactly where he needs us. With the family we have, with the finances we have, with the job that we have, with the house that we have, with the health issues that we have. If we trust him that he has a plan and a purpose, we won't complain about our situation no matter how bad it may become. Fourth. We'll know that we're humble when we see more clearly the strengths and virtues of others as well as our own weaknesses and sins. We will look at others and say, you know what, God's given them gifts and abilities that I don't have, but praise God for those things. And that I have weaknesses and sins and and temptations and things that I deal with on a regular basis. We'll see the good in others. Fifth, we'll know we're humble when we spend much more time in prayer. When your prayer life becomes just as powerful, when your prayer life exceeds all, we're praying regularly, we'll know that we become humble because we realize everything we do and say and need, our actions, we need God's help through them. Sixth, we'll know we're humble when the word of God will be our standard. When we look at God's word and we don't add to it and look at the various uh, things that we can do, the various traditions that we can have, the various uh, legalistic rules that we follow, we look at God's word and we know that's the standard and that's where we'll follow. That's when we know we're humble. And seventh, we'll know we're humble when we give God praise and thanks for his grace. Because we knew that we can't earn our salvation on our own. It was Christ who died for us. 
so that he paid the penalty for which we deserved. And we lay our sins on the cross because we know he's taken them away. And we ask for forgiveness of those things, knowing full well that he, is, he, is, he will cleanse us of all that unrighteousness. That's grace, and we give him praise. That's when we know we're humble. You know, the next 40 days are going to be a challenge as we look at these attitudes and actions that we have. There's going to be temptations from all different directions. There's going to be temptations beyond these 40 days as well. Because it's hard not to be prideful. It's hard not to have those various attitudes where we think that we can do it on our own. Some of us are dealing with all kinds of other issues. Pride is the least of our concerns. We're dealing with other addictions, other, other attitudes, other problems in life. But understand this. When God's word teaches us that we have certain attitudes and certain ways of life, we can achieve them because we look back at the temptation and go, no matter what the temptation is, that Christ went through the same things that we are, and he can emphasize with us. And that's why we keep our eyes focused on him. When our flesh wants to go back and be prideful, we look to him and say, Lord Jesus, I need your help. I end with this story because and I, I think it's so powerful because it reminds us of the fact that we need to keep our eyes on Christ. In times of temptation, we need to focus on him. There was a man who had a, had a dog. The man was trying to train his dog to be obedient to follow certain rules in the house. And what he would do is he would take a large piece of meat, good, red, juicy meat that the dogs would normally like to eat, and he would put it in the middle of the floor near the dog and then say no to the dog. Well, the first few times, that was an irrelevant suggestion. Right? The dog proceeded to grab the meat and got wailed on. And after a few results, when he said no, the dog no longer attacked the meat. The dog got trained to have certain attitudes and behaviors. So he would put the meat down, he would say no, and the dog wouldn't go for the meat. But he noticed something very interesting. He noticed that when he put the meat on the floor, the dog never for a moment took his eyes off his master. He focused on his master the whole time. Seemingly feeling that if he did so, the temptation to disobey would be too great. He just maintained a steadfast gaze into the face of his master. It's wonderful to know and remember as we go through life, as we go through and we examine our own lives over the next 40 days. We have certain attitudes. The gaze on the face of our Lord. For the strength. Knowing that he's given us principles in his word for us to follow. And that blessedness will come. My hope is that at the end of 40 days, as we examine our lives and these attitudes, that we will feel blessed. We will have so much joy, more joy than ever before. And it's wonderful now to come to the communion table and as we remember and we reflect on his face. Him dying on the cross for us, he paid the penalty for us. Let's remember that as we come to the communion table now. Lord Jesus, we thank you for today. Thank you that we can have these attitudes, Lord, that are beautiful as tough as they may be. Lord, I pray that as we examine our own lives over the next week, that you root out any pride that we might have, that we really can be poor in spirit, dependent on you in every aspect of our life. Lord, help us to not try to do it on our own because you know we can't. But Lord, help us to remember that you're there for us. Help us to keep our eyes solely fixed on you. Lord, thank you. 
thank you that we can live this life with joy. Lord, we surrender it all to you. And we remember that now as we come to your communion table. We remember what you did for us on the cross. Your body broken, your blood shed. Lord, help us to keep our eyes fixed on you all the days of our life. And I ask all this in your precious name.